John 17. So we've uh, been out of this uh, passage for a little while. We took a short detour to cover the topic of definite atonement. And then we had the conference last week. So uh, we are finally getting back to, uh, to our text, John 17. So uh, to get us going, let me remind us briefly where we are at, um, how this passage unfolds, and uh, some significant themes we've encountered so far. As you know, chapter 17 is a single prayer of Christ's. It is often referred to as uh, Christ's high priestly prayer because he is functioning like a priest, dying for his people, uh, praying, interceding for his people. But it might be better just to title this prayer Christ's closing prayer. This prayer really summarizes um, all that he has taught in the upper room discourse, chapters 13 to 16. Uh, It's meant to secure all the blessings that he's promised to his people. So we call it Christ's closing prayer, and it unfolds in actually two quite distinct sections. In verses 1 to 5, Christ prays for himself. We already saw those verses. And then the second section, verses 6 through 26, Christ prays for his people. We can further divide that section down in verses 6 through 19. He prays for his current disciples, those who are believers during his earthly ministry. And then in verses 20 through 26, Christ prays for all his disciples. He broadens the scope of of his prayer to include all of his disciples. And last time we were in, we just started that that first subsection, verses 6 to 19, where he's praying for his current disciples. In the last lesson, we only covered verses 6 through 11, where he provides the grounds for his prayer. He not only lets us listen into his requests, he also lets us listen into the grounds for his requests, the basis on which he prays to the Father why he expects the Father to answer his prayers. And the purpose of those verses was to highlight the eternal love and commitment of the Father and Son for his people. Christ's requests that are to come in the following verses are certain because they are in such harmony with the Father's purposes and commitment to his people. So that's what the purpose of those verses were, just to highlight the certainty of all that that follows. But now we come to verse 11, where we get this transition. So look with me at verse 11. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So this is the reason why Christ will be making these requests that he will make his bodily presence is about to depart from his people and go to the father leaving his people behind in the world so while Christ's ascension will mean his glory his victory his accomplishment of your redemption it will also mean that you as a disciple will be left behind in the world in a world to which you do not belong a world out of which you have been chosen, a world which now hates you because of your treason to its rebellious kingdom. 
against God, a kingdom of which you were once a part. And so Christ prays for them. He prays for you. And while these verses, verses 11 to 19, are strictly applied to his disciples, those alive during his ministry, we will find out in verses 20 to 26, as he expands the scope, it, much of it applies to us as, as well. So there's many things in these verses for us this morning. So let's begin by, by, by reading our passage. I've entitled these verses, Christ Makes Two Requests for his disciples in light of his departure and their mission while in the world. So look at verse 11, the second half there. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and Not one from them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So in these verses, Christ essentially makes two requests for his disciples. He requests their perseverance, their preservation, and their sanctification. Their preservation, the Father keep them, and their sanctification of his disciples who will be left behind in in the world. Since he'll no longer be physically with them, he's now committing them to his Father's care. But that's not all. Notice something. Notice that Christ not only secures these things through his people with his prayer, but he also allows us to listen in on his prayer. That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't have to do that. In other words, Christ wanted his disciples to hear what he prayed. And John wants his readers, you and me, to hear what Jesus prayed. Well, why? Well, it's because Christ wants us to know what he has secured for us. He wants us to know the commitment of the Father for you and for me. Well, why? Well, as we will see, it's not merely for our own comfort and personal well-being. Obviously, that's included, but it's for something more. It's because he has left us in this hostile world for the purpose of mission and witness to the world. And if we are going to engage this world rightly as his representatives, we need to know and be strengthened by what he prays here. That's why he lets us listen in this morning. We've all heard the saying, we are to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. Um, It's interesting, those exact words are not found anywhere in the Bible. That's not a Bible verse. Um, 
but they come from passages like the ones we're going to be looking at this morning. And in fact, this text comes the closest to any in all the Bible of saying this, this very thing. But what does it mean? As disciples, we no longer belong to this world. We have a different source, different origin. We've been born again. And so we have different values, beliefs, goals, desires. But we remain in the world as those who have been sent to the world as Christ's witnesses. And this passage gives us much hope for the world. Although this world hates God and hates us, his people, we are sent to the world as those who are not from the world, bearing the hate of the world, to bear witness to the world for the salvation of the world. And it will be through these kinds of disciples that some, many, from the world will come out from being the world. And will receive eternal life and enter Messiah's sheepfold. Is that the hope of verse 20? Look over at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There's hope. So that's the context and the aim of Christ's request in this passage. You see, as disciples who've been left here for this purpose, we face two temptations that threaten our mission. The temptation to disengage from the world, probably out of fear of the world's hate, or the temptation to compromise and conform to the world, maybe to tamper down the world's hate just a bit. And both of those temptations threaten our identity as disciples and our purpose for which we've been left here. And that's why Christ prays what he does and why he wants us to listen in. He wants us to know with confidence the certainty of our preservation, despite what opposition we face. He wants to give us a portrait of faithful discipleship, which would be essential for this mission. He wants to highlight the certainty of future glory, despite what we might suffer here. And so that's why he prays and lets us listen in this, this morning. So let's, uh, let's begin In verses 11 to 15, Christ prays for his people's preservation since they remain in the world to which they no longer belong. And this morning, this is the only request we will look at. Next week, we will look at sanctification. This morning, his people's preservation since they remain in the world. It says, Christ will no longer be in the world, but disciples remain in the world. Therefore, he prays for them. Look at the rest of 11, verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Christ first asks the Father to preserve the faith of disciples for the purpose of their unity. So we get in this verse. And the first thing he requests from the Father is that the Father would keep his disciples. He says, keep them in your name that you have given to me. Now, what is this? What does that mean? In your name that you have given me. Well, the Father's name, we've seen it multiple times, is the revelation, the manifestation of his person, his character put on public display. That's the Father's name. 
And this name has been given to Jesus. Look what he says, which you have given to me. So that's now the fifth thing we've seen in chapter 17 that's been given to Christ. See that? He was given authority. He's given a people. He's given work to do. He's given words. And now he's given the Father's very own name. In other words, for Christ to have been given the Father's name means that the Father's being and character are uniquely revealed and displayed through Christ. You see? Isn't that what John has told us from the beginning of the gospel? No, I, no man has ever seen God, but the only God at the right hand of the Father has made him known. Christ is the fullest, the climactic revelation of the Father. Let me just note that that could only be true about Christ if he was just as fully God as the Father. You see? So what then does that mean? Keep them in your name that you've given me. What does that mean? He's going to pray for their keeping again in verse 15. It means something like to preserve or protect them. So it must mean something like this. These disciples, Father, have recognized and believed in your name as it has been revealed through me. They have believed that I am from you. They have received my words as your words. Now, Father, ensure, cause them to continue to believe and remain faithful to this revelation. I think that's what he means here. In other words, Christ's mission has been to ensure the faith and the final salvation of every one of those the Father gave to him. And one of the primary ways he accomplishes that is by praying for them, praying for you, before and after his ascension. You see? He prayed for you. Verse 20, clearly it expands it to you, and your perseverance before his cross. And he continues to pray for you now in heaven. And Christ's prayers are always answered. That was the point of last lesson. This is the rock-solid foundation and the only reason why any of us will endure to the end. And it's certain you will. The Father will keep you. He brought you to faith in the Son, and he will preserve your faith. But notice something very interesting here in this, in this verse. Notice that our preservation, our salvation, is not the ultimate purpose for which Christ prays his prayer. You see that in the verse? What is? There's another seemingly greater purpose. What is it? Look what he says so that they might be one, just as we are one. His purpose is that as his people are kept in true faith, they might continue to experience unity. Now that's interesting. That's not what I would have prayed. Unity, that important. What is this unity? Well, it's clearly a unity that comes from a common faith in Christ. The only way we can be truly unified is as we persevere in faith in Christ. And as we do, we experience a kind of unity that reflects the very unity of the Trinity. You see that? That they might be one even as we are one. 
It's a kind of unity that comes from a common faith in Christ and flows out to a mutual love and devotion to one another. A kind of oneness of purpose and focus, just like the Godhead. And that's what Christ prays, why he prays for the perseverance of his disciples, so that they and we would continue to be unified. Now, we'll say much more about this. There's much more that needs to be said uh, in the weeks ahead, because he brings it up again in verses 20 through 23. But the point here is that the purpose of Christ's prayer for our perseverance is our unity, and any and all unity comes from a true faith in Christ. But why does he do that? Why does he make the unity of believers his purpose beyond their mere salvation? What's because, as we're going to discover in verses 20 to 23, the mission of disciples is at stake. You see, if they do not persevere, if we do not persevere, not only will our salvation be threatened, but so also will our unity. And therefore, so also will our witness and Christ's mission to the world. In other words, Christ is reminding us here that the central component of our witness to the world is our unity in the gospel, our mutual commitment to one another because of our faith in Christ. It's not a unity that compromises truth for the sake of unity. That's what the world has. It's a a false, empty unity. It's a unity that thrives on the clear and narrow truth of all that Christ is and all that Christ has spoken. And this unity will be the means whereby the gospel and the trinity are put on display to the world. So is that how you think of the church? Is that how you think of the importance of unity in the church? Did you realize that every time we gather together, every time we center ourselves around the truth of Christ and the gospel, love one another, devote our lives to one another, labor with one another with a common cause, we're putting the very gospel and the triune God on display to the world. And that's a significant means of our witness, Jesus says. But it will only happen if we persevere, you see. And that's why Christ prays for for our faith. So that's the first thing he requests. Next, in verses 12 to 13, he he rehearses his successful ministry. He rehearses his successful ministry. In verse 12, he speaks of how he protected his people for the purpose of their perseverance. Look at verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Notice this is the exact same wording as verse 11, only it's Jesus here who's doing the keeping. During his earthly ministry, he kept, he guarded, he ensured the faith of his his people. So how did he do that? How did he keep his people in the name that the Father gave to him? How did he do that? There's a number of ways. I think he primarily did it as he taught them. The whole upper room, what has he been doing? He's been preparing his disciples, right? 
He's been teaching them. He's been preparing them for the cross, what's going to happen, for the persecutions that are going to be coming on them. But the point is, is that Christ perfectly and successfully guarded all of his sheep from being destroyed, from perishing, from unbelief. Look what he says. He says, none from them has been destroyed. None. Not one. Not a single one of his sheep. Christ loses none of his own. None of those the Father from eternity gave the Son does Christ ever lose. This builds on what Christ spoke back in chapter 10. You might remember it. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He doesn't lose a single one of his own. And since Christ will no longer be with his people on earth until his second coming, he continues to guard them by praying for them, by praying for you, securing your salvation. But that raises a question, doesn't it? What about Judas? What about Judas? Wasn't he one of Christ's own? And he perished. He betrayed Christ. He was destroyed. Was that an exception? Was that an instance of a momentary failure of Christ to keep his own? You see, if it was, then not only does that mean that none of us can have the certainty of being kept by Christ, it means that Christ failed in the work that the Father gave him, and it means he could not be the Father's Messiah. So that's why Jesus says what he says next. Look at the rest of the verse. He speaks of the son of destruction. None has been lost except the son of destruction. refers to Judas. Could either refer to his character, his transgression and evil, son of destruction, or his destiny, which is destruction, and it, it probably refers to, to both. Jesus says that Judas was destroyed. He perished. So what do we do with him? Well, if you remember back to, to John 6, we get, get, gain some insight into Christ's choice of Judas. Look at John 6. Jesus said, but there are some of you who do not believe. And John gives us this comment. For Jesus knew from the beginning, the beginning of his ministry, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going To betray him. You see, Jesus was never fooled by Judas. He knew his evil heart from the beginning of his ministry. He knew what he would do. He knew he was not one of his sheep. So then why did Jesus choose him? If he knew that, why did he choose him to be a part of the twelve? We're told here. In order to fulfill scripture. You see? is in order to fulfill Scripture. told us this back in John 13. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He quotes Psalm 41.9 to indicate that it was necessary that the Messiah also be betrayed by a close companion as he's the greater David who will walk in the same footsteps of David. That's why he chose him. 
So all this to say, the defection of Judas does not call Christ's messiahship and his perfect keeping of his own into question. It doesn't. He successfully kept all of his own, and he continues to keep us by praying for us. That's not the only thing he did while on earth. He also prepared his people for his departure for the purpose of their joy. Look at verse 13. He says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So not only does he pray for them as he departs from them, but he also leaves words behind, you see? Leaves words behind for them while they remain in the in the world. He says, these things I speak. It probably refers to this prayer, but also to his entire farewell discourse, chapters 13 to 16. But notice his purpose. He gives us another purpose here for this teaching, for these words. Just like back in verse 11, it was not only for their perseverance, but also it's for the sake of their perseverance with abundant joy. Abundant joy. That's why we have these words this morning for us, for your abundant joy. The purpose of Christ's words that we have preserved here in the Gospel of John is that we would be filled with joy in his absence from us. He's promised joy repeatedly through the upper room. Let me show you one of them. John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, as Christ departs, he's left his church with his words. And what he desires from us is that we would abide in them. Believe them, know the love of God for us and respond with joyful obedience to God. And as we do that, we will experience abundant joy. The same kind of joy he experienced. So I think this is to say that Christ not only has ensured the preservation of his people while in the world, but that's just going to be a miserable experience for you. But he's telling us that he's also giving us his teaching, which will be the source of our joy as we're filled with the love of God and are preserved in the midst of a world that hates us, you see. So what a portrait this is. As disciples, you've been left in the world and you're promised God's protection of your faith. And you're given the words of Christ. And the purpose is that you would be unified and that you would be filled with joy. You see that? In the midst of this world. But that now brings us to verses 14 to 15. In which Christ now asks the Father to enable his disciples to endure the hate of the world and the schemes of the devil for the purpose of faithful witness. Look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus now shifts from speaking about his words to the father's word singular. You see that? The two are synonymous with one another. Your word refers to the sum total of the Father's revelation, which has come through Christ. 
And while on the one hand it will mean the preservation of his people and the joy of his people, on the other hand it will mean that you will experience hate from the world. Both of these simultaneously. At the same time, hate from the world and immeasurable joy in Christ. Jesus tells us the primary reason the world hates disciples is that disciples like Christ are not from the world. We're not sourced from the world. We've been born from God, a new source altogether. He's chosen us out of the world. Chapter 15, verse 19. We who once participated in the world's rebellious system against God, we've received new life. We now love and trust the one we once hated. We now labor for his kingdom that we once opposed. We now stand opposed to the world with which we were once in alliance. And not only that, but we also possess and believe and hold forth God's final revelation of himself in Christ. And such people can, experience, can expect nothing less than the hate of the world. Christ's ascension will mean his glory and the accomplishment of redemption, but it will also mean that Christ is no longer here to deflect the world's hate away from us onto himself, but we will be left exposed. D.A. Carson writes this, But for the disciples, the consequence of their having been chosen out of the world, of their having obeyed the word the Father gave Jesus, is that they, like Jesus, are aligned with the Father and his gracious self-disclosure in Christ Jesus. Insofar as they, with this revelation, side with this revelation, the disciples infuriate the world. The world loves its own, and the disciples are not of the world, but are of God and his revelation. This revelation is presenting the truth and commanding assent, condemns the world, and exposes its evil, and the world snarls. In savage rage. That's the condition of disciples. So given this reality, what does Christ pray for? What does he pray for? Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Given this reality, you would think that he would pray that we would be removed from the world. That's how he would protect us. In fact, he intentionally prays that we would not be removed from the world. You see that? Don't take him out of the world, Father. He prays the Father would keep his people not by removing them from the world, but by protecting them from the evil one. So who is the evil one here? What's a favorite title that John uses for the devil. We encounter it a number of times in, in 1 John. I'll show you one of them. John says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Yes, sir. Had written this little uh, thing, note in pencil on verse 15, and uh, I, I wrote it. Uh, I don't know where I heard it from, but 
Uh, I thought it was kind of yeah. catchy. Yeah. Uh, we're not not isolated from the world, hmm. but insulated. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Not isolated, but insulated. Yeah. Amen. It's beautiful. That's exactly what Jesus is, is telling us here. Uh, we're protected in the midst of it. Whatever hate and persecution and oppositions we experience, I think John is telling us, is ultimately fueled by and under the command of the devil. The whole world is under his power, and it will continue that way until the consummation. Believers live in the midst of this world, not under the power and control of the devil like before. That's been broken, right? We're no longer his slaves. We're, we, his accusations against us no longer stand. His fangs have been broken off, if you will. Powerless. And yet, he's still able to harm us physically. Through the world, inflict great suffering upon us. To use Piper's illustration, his fangs have been broken off, but he can still gum you to death. And he does. So that's why Christ prays what he does. It's not his will that you escape this kind of suffering or hate or persecution in this life. It is his will that you be kept from the evil one, that is from his snares, his traps, his deceptions, which will cause you to turn from the faith and ultimately perish, you see? That's great comfort for disciples. Neither Satan nor the world can do anything to you to take you away from Christ. To deceive you and make you fall away so that you would be ultimately destroyed. What comfort that is. What comfort. What encouragement not to hide ourselves from the world. But to run to the world. Holding forth the word of life. I like what John Calvin said. He said, in short, God does not take his people out of the world because he does not wish them to be effeminate and slothful. But he delivers them from evil that they may not be overwhelmed for he wishes them to fight but does not suffer them to be mortally wounded. So that brings us back to where we started, doesn't it? As disciples, our identity is that we are not from this world but we are sent into this world. That will not only mean the hate and opposition and traps of the evil one, it will mean a temptation to disengage. To go hide somewhere. Temptation to compromise. But both are not options for disciples. We've been left here for this mission. And to enable us and strengthen us for this mission, to keep us from fearing and running, are these rock-solid promises in this passage. Promises which have been given to us, secured for you by your great high priest. The promise of God's absolute protection and preservation of your soul to ensure you make it all the way to glory. Listen to D.A. Carson. He says, The Christian's task then is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world, but to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth by the help of the paraclete and absorbing all the malice that the world can muster, finally protected by the Father himself, in response to the prayer of Jesus. And while that will ensure the suffering and hate of the world, it will also mean your unity and your abundant joy. And as that's true in your life, you will be fulfilling your calling as a witness to the world. 
And the hope and promise we have from this passage is that through us, many from the world who were just like us at one point, they'll be brought out from the world. They'll cease to be the world. And they'll join us in this mission. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for leaving us with these words. Thank you for the confidence that we have in our great high priest who secured it all for us. Oh, that we would live with faith and confidence in his love and all he secured for us. Use us. May we be faithful instruments of you for your glory and purposes in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.